Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. The Climate Bonds Initiative has identified five hallmarks of a credible climate mitigation transition for companies. Today, the Sustainable Finance Podcast is fortunate to have Sean Kidney, CEO at the Climate Bonds Initiative, as our guest to update our followers on how companies are using these hallmarks and what climate mitigation action investors and their financial advisors can expect from companies in various sectors of the global economy between now and 2030. We're also going to talk about what choices investors can make to support companies in achieving their net zero near-term objectives. Sean will join us in a moment, but first I want to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning into this podcast, then you already understand the crucial role that finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, Sean, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Paul, thank you for having me on. Yes, we've been we've been trying to set this up for some time, haven't we? <laughs> we have. Stuff well, gets in the way, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. well, listen, uh, it's good that you're as busy as you are putting the good word out about the Climate Bonds Initiative. So let's begin today, by the way, by level setting for our audience what the Climate Bonds Initiative is referring to when discussing or proposing policy related to any company's climate mitigation transition? Sure. Uh, look, we have you know the problem. Your listeners know the problem. We have this vast challenge. The way I frame the challenge, mm -hmm. you know, putting aside the environmental stuff, existential risk facing us as a species if we don't address this challenge, mm -hmm. let alone the, let's call it, traumatic impact on people's lives that we're inflicting on our own people as a result of not addressing this challenge quickly enough, is we have to shift the global economy to a sustainable fashion in double quick time. This is going to make the mobilization after Pearl Harbor in the US look like child's play. We have to invest in one calculation by McKinsey's earlier this year, some $150 trillion between now and 2050 in shifting just the low carbon aspects of the economic changes we've got to make. And by the way, something to note about that, that's not all new investment. That's about two-thirds or three-quarters reorientation of existing investment. Think building a power station with solar rather than coal. In other words, we're actually doing a lot of the stuff. We've just got to do it differently. We've got to build railway lines that are now have higher tensile strength steel because of the heat we're going to start experiencing, rail lines are going to start buckling in the sun in summer if they're made of the old kind of steel, as they have actually started doing in Australia a couple of years ago when we saw 50 degrees Celsius heat. That's, what's that, about 130 Fahrenheit or something? Yeah. Um, which 
meant the rail, the rail lines in the state of Victoria buckled in the heat and had to be replaced. That's a that's a cost we want to avoid, right? This kind of remediation costs are expensive. So there's a, a reason to get our procurement requirements right, make this transition. And then there's a high capex penalty as for some investments because those sole investments made a much higher capital upfront, much lower operating costs, and they last a long time. We save a lot of money, but we've got to find the capital upfront that it compared to a gas plant or a coal plant. So and capital costs counting. So that's the challenge we're to do. If we can make this transition, which has been mapped out by many organizations from McKinsey's the new climate economy to various economic organizations, even the IMF has had doubled on this. If we make this transition, we build a world that we can live in. That's one. It's not going to solve climate change because climate change is now baked in. We've been so late to the party. We're going to see incredible heat coming forward, etc. floods droughts and other things. Miami is going to be flooded much more frequently going forward and may end up looking like Venice the way we're going. Venice with towers anyway. <laughs> if we make this change, think about it this way. Investing $150 trillion, even if only $15 trillion is new, is, this is the biggest stimulus the world has ever seen. Mm-hmm. This will, in terms of economic stimulus, also dwarf the industrial mobilization the US did after Pearl Harbor, which helped finish off the depression, which helped create the kind of economy that was able to power ahead after World War II, once we'd gotten over the severity of the crisis of that war. Well, similar situation here. Once we get over the severity of the crisis we face, the need to rapidly reduce emissions and to prepare for the impacts of climate change to minimize loss of life, loss of property, loss of Value. We will enter into a different kind of age, an age of being much more in touch with what's going on around us and being able to respond, better be able to predict volatility and change, an age of low energy. Every projection I see says that the shift to low-carbon energy is also a shift to lower cost, ubiquitous, easily available, widely distributed energy. And our civilizations have been driven by this phenomenon in the past. Coal was that phenomenon 200 years ago. Oil was that phenomenon 100 years ago. And now we just need to shift a different kind of energy to power the next stage of our civilizational growth. There's a lot of positive things about this. And that's what we're on about. We're on about making sure that capital shifts fast, not slowly, quickly, because we have to do it very quickly. If we miss a window, think of this as you have to catch the train. If you miss the train, you're stuck at home for the night the week forever in our case. If we catch this train, we're on a train to a better future for our kids, a future that we can feel, we can leave them with some pride without and not be embarrassed by it, not being depressed about it. So what have we got to do? We've got to move capital. The capital actually is there. That's the good news. Like We're lucky at the moment in this history. We have more capital on the planet than ever before in history. It's incredible. How lucky are we? Yeah, it's really true. Chunks of this capital are in things like negative interest rate Japanese and German government bonds, negative interest rates. So you think, whoa, we've got stuff to redeploy. We've just got to move it to things that are more productive and give us a future. That's kind of the job. And that will require corporates to start planning to absorb this preferential capital. And by the way, proven that the capital wants green because it broke this little thing called a green bonds market. It's gone since we started from $2 billion outstanding to $4 trillion outstanding now. And it continues to grow. 
continues to grow. So there's proof of concept. We now need everyone to get on the train. Okay, well, listen, in September of 2022, the Climate Bonds Initiative published a paper entitled Transition Finance for Transforming Companies. When we use the term transition finance, Sean, what are we referring to regarding companies and in what sectors of the global economy are we talking about the need for this transition? Sounds like it's every sector from your comments so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, all the, the tough truth, it is tough, is that we do need to transition pretty well everything you can think of. Clearly, energy sector, we all know about that transport sector, but it applies to agricultural sector, which is transition to low carbon, to sustainable and to resilient. You know, in a world of seesawing between drought and flood and heat, we've got a bit plant different crops already. The crop zones are shifting quite rapidly. You know, in 30 years time, there's some people are saying maize won't be able to grow in Mexico, which is where maize came from because of the changes of climate. We've got to prepare we, we have more predictive capacity now than we've ever had in history, and it's only getting better. You know, we're, we're going into volatility, but we've got a pretty good idea of what the volatility is going to be like and where it's going to be, you know, can't be perfect, but you've got some ideas, which means you've got enough to prepare. We also have increasing predictive power, satellite coverage. We're able to track and monitor things like the dryness of soils and therefore the water absorption of soils which therefore means the extent to which those soils will reflect water into floods versus absorb it. Hey, this is cool. This is really cool stuff. You add that with a bit of artificial intelligence, looking at 40 years of history, you can sort of see how we can get the tools to manage the crazy volatility we're going into. This is a, trans an a sector we have to invest in so we can transition to a new way of being. The property sector has to transition to becoming very low carbon and heat resilient because we're now going to get severe heat incidences across the world, which is likely to see large-scale loss of life in some areas, unless we prepare fast. We need to transition, of course, in industry, steel, chemicals, these things, and cement. These things actually are major contributors to emissions globally. Like those three things alone represent something like 20% of all emissions. So we've got to actually do a lot. The idea of transition is becoming green. The first part, the most urgent part of the transition is high carbon to low carbon. We need to stop stop emitting fast to buy ourselves time. The second part of the transition is to become resilient, to be able to prepare things so we can survive the, the madness of what weather's going to be like and what, as a result of that, the economy, the society we live in is going to be like, how things are going to really shift around because... It's just going to get tough. And when it gets tough, well, you know, the last time we had severe climate change, this planet was the 1600s. We did actually have two degrees cooling. According to researchers at Stanford, they now tell us that the reason we had the two degrees cooling is that so many American Indians died in the 1500s from the release of, of smallpox and measles by white folk deliberately and, and, and inadvertently. At 95% of all... American Indians died in that 150-year period after white, white men arrived. It was extraordinary loss of life. The regrowth in forest cover in the Amazon and in Central 
Central America was so, so, we now know from tree wings, so huge, it sucked carbon out of the atmosphere. It's kind of hopeful if you try to look at reforestation as a solution, will be out one of the solutions now. And it cooled the planet and then led to feedback loops and so on. That cooling of the planet by two degrees in the 1600s is remembered by our historians as a century of war, pandemic, and famine. That's actually how we experience climate change. Crops fail for a couple of years in a row. You get famines. That is either exacerbated or triggers war. We had the 30-year war in Germany where 50% of the whole population of Germany was killed in, in old-fashioned warfare, you know, knives and the like. We saw the plague come through a couple of times. All, you know, around This happened around the world. This wasn't just Europe. This was, this was in all across Asia and Africa as well. And we lost a third of the world's population that century, a third of the world's population. Folks, we've got a recent history example of what actually happens. You can see why we need to transition to repair to this is not necessary. We messed it up. And, and you know, there's a little bit of example of a, how to do it. One country that we know of in the history, in the history books in the 1600s that survived quite well, that was Japan. And the beginning of that century, the Tokugawa regime came to power and centralized the economy. They were actually quite intelligent rulers, you know, lucky, you know, autocrats are not always intelligent. Uh, they were quite intelligent rulers. They did things like institute a system of appointed governors who had to do what the central government said around and look after infrastructure and look after feeding the population and look after repairs when there was a crisis. Not all governors, let alone dictators nowadays, are good at those things. Whenever there was a crisis, they insisted the governors rebuild the bridges, rebuild the towns, etc. Whenever there was a famine, as there were many, they insisted that the governors open up the government granaries to distribute the food equally. And if they didn't, they executed them. Pretty tough. <laughs> that, it, that it would get away with that kind of bottle nowadays, but you get the idea. Yeah. And as a result, the loss of life in Japan compared to the rest of the world was minimal. They managed to survive the century, century of obsolete. Well, we've got to learn from these guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this paper that I referenced uh, in uh, a moment ago or a few moments ago uh, was really an update of a paper from 2021. Correct. Um, that you published through the Climate Bonds Initiative, which was about avoiding greenwashing when financing company decarbonization. Um, I'm not sure yep. still, even today, a lot of our audience understands what greenwashing really is about. Can you give us a couple of examples of what greenwashing looks like uh, from the fixed income market, since that's your area of speciality? Well, there's a couple of different kinds of greenwashing. Uh, there's making a claim, getting the benefits of being green, might be reputational, it might be reduced cost of capital about being green, um, which is a false claim. The second one is making a claim in good intentions, but you're not necessarily well enough informed. They are a little bit different. So in the first one, we don't see many. But occasionally we do some where people are making a claim to be green, getting their reputational benefit, and, and you know, frankly, it's just rubbish. <laughs> you see that in consumer products quite often. Um, I saw this, you know, an example would be I saw some water on sale in a supermarket recently, and the label was gluten-free. And I'm thinking, it's water. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, 
Okay, that is stretching the limit. Now, it, it wasn't a lie because water is gluten-free, but I'm going to say that's pushing the envelope a little bit. Now, if it had said, you know, solves cancer, that would be a straight scam. And, you know, we have seen some stuff like that in, in consumer affairs. That's why we have consumer affairs departments around the world now, protecting citizens against lies like this. But that in our area has been luckily pretty poor. Where we've seen the problem has been claims about the benefits which are not necessarily backed up by the science. Now, I'm going to put that down as being ill-informed. You might, some of our listeners might think people are pushing the envelope further than that, but to get the benefit of the doubt, because people have been reasonably honest now. We've got, you know, good disclosure, good transparency, the practice in the green and climate bonds market has been to get an independent review and so on. But, you know, an example would be the legal cases that have happened in Europe and the UK recently against energy companies claiming that their gas investments were benefiting the environment, helping climate change. The science is pretty clear it's not so good, you know, because we've seen so much methane leakage in particular, which blows out all the benefits of shifting to gas, um, because methane is very, very potent. Gas is largely made up of methane. You get a 3% leakage rate, you might as well build a coal-fired power station, honestly. There's not a lot of difference in, in net greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, the courts in, bo in both Europe and in the UK threw out, or rather agreed with plaintiffs who had claimed that advertising by energy companies, by um, Equinor or one other, that they were helping climate were false advertising. Was that a, full, a deliberate scam or did they think they were doing good? You know, there's a lot of science, a lot of governments, I should say, saying that gas is part of the equation. It's a misunderstanding. People haven't caught up with the science. So it's a different kind of scam. It's a sort of scam, let's face it, but it's not as severe because at least they're being honest about it. In the green bonds market, we do a lot of work to educate investors, to educate issuers and governments about what the science is saying now. We publish what's called taxonomies of sustainable finance as guidance for what qualifies. And there are a whole lot of areas where people are frankly totally ignorant. In agriculture, very few companies, let alone investors, have a clue about what's the right kind of agriculture and not got a whole team working on that. But you know, one clue, it's got to at least maintain carbon stocks. And ideally, it's got to improve them. Like That's just like a minimal line. Some agriculture doesn't. Maize, I mentioned to you before, has another problem is that it's not very good for carbon maintenance and soils. It actually reduces the carbon stocks. Whereas other crops, a good example is quinoa, which is a Peruvian food crop, which is very popular amongst young people at the moment. don't like it myself, but it's really good for carbon. <laughs> it fixes carbon in the soil. You just got so to mix it with the right things, Sean. <laughs> I eat it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, you're, you're on the right side of, of the angels. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, here's here here's the, the, the next question I wanted to ask you is about the conferences and the events that you do on a regular basis through the Climate Bonds Initiative. In fact, you've you've done one recently during Climate Week in New York, and you've got your global conference coming up in London on November 9th and 10th. What can you tell our followers about the investor and asset manager focus around climate bonds that you're encountering when you speak with people at these gatherings? Sure. The themes of the conference are the ready, set transition. You sort of 
get the idea of this podcast. Um, I'm going to say that amongst global investors, there is incredible appetite for green solutions because they understand they've got a long-term risk their portfolios now. Mm-hmm. And they need to do something, but they've still got to get short-term returns. And what we've done with the green and climate bond market is create an instrument which does both. It is equivalent to what you can get as short-term returns. You know, it's not necessarily better, but it's not worse. You can swap it in and out without anyone noticing, but also as a bonus feature, addresses the long-term risk in terms of shifting investment towards climate. And demand is unquestionable. I have not been to any country in the last year where supply is not the problem. Actually, there's no shortage of investors everywhere, and that applies to the US, to Europe, to Japan, to China, to India, to Brazil, to South Africa. It's all about generating things that people can invest in that can do this wonderful thing of allowing them to earn a return to pay our pensions or retire. They've got a fiduciary duty, but also address the long-term risk of climate change. And transition is the central part of that. And so at our conferences, I get everyone from asset owners like Kester Depot in Quebec to big fund managers like BlackRock or Fidelity saying, where can we get more of these things? Who's doing what? What's the future look like? Now, how many governments or corporations or cities are coming to market these things? We want them for two reasons. We want them because the demand by investors to be doing well, doing well by doing good, right? What's not to like about it is enormous. And also, we like the signaling aspect because in terms of our other investments, our equity investments or whatever, we're kind of looking for companies that are ahead of the curve, that are riding the wave of change rather than being swamped by the wave of change. And green bonds issuance are a good signal because it means you're doing something. It means you've got your act together. So that's uh, you know, it's not perfect, but it's a good clue as to where to look. So the equity side is using the bond issuance side as a guide to where to rethink their investment strategies. The demand is incredible. So I spend all of my time now talking to people about the need to come to market and to issue. And these are the reasons why it's growing so fast. And that's what we hear at our conferences. People want to know the detail. They want to know, well, so what do I do in agriculture? How do I do that? An issuer wants to know, will my portfolio work in this area? And we need to bring the science to bear. So let's, this is what the science says. What, what's, what about the steel sector? What kind of steel investments qualify? Well, you know, there's really good investments in the US now, which are green steel investments. They're, they're actually coming around. Fantastic. And that'll help reduce global emissions quite significantly. But people need to understand, what does it mean if, I, if I'm if i relining a blast furnace and making it a bit more efficient? Does that count? No. You've got to move towards hydrogen or electric arc furnace, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the rail, does rail count? I remember one investor saying, but rail's dirty. How does this qualify? It's low carbon. It's electric, especially if it's electric rail. Then it absolutely qualifies. Get trucks off the road unless they're electric trucks. But even then, the resource efficiency of rail is so much better, et cetera, et cetera. So um, people are looking for guidance, which is a, such a better place to be than it was, let's say, five years ago or 10 years ago, where people were saying, why is this important to me? <laughs> Well, listen, Sean, in 90 seconds, uh, we want to get your perspective on the upcoming 
conference in the United Arab Emirates. That's COP28. I'm sure you're going to be there talking about climate bonds and the climate bonds initiative while that's going on. Is there anything or any big announcements that you're aware of that that our, in, our investors and, and listeners might be interested in knowing about uh, um, as, as we prime the pump for that big conference? Sure. Look, there's a lot of in announcements coming through about um, dedicated funds to invest in things like clean energy or resilience investments. There's lots of governments that are going to be talking about the policy measures they're now taking. You know, the world is this big shift at the moment. We've got all the major governments of the developed countries looking at policies to achieve very tough 2030 targets. It's only a few short years away. They're doing it. That's why the IRA, or what the IRA is doing in the US, but also the Renew Power, so Repower EU program in Europe, or the, or the Green Transformation program in Japan, and so on. These things are big deal. We're talking about you know trillions of dollars being mobilized and encouraged by governments. The changes happen. The tsunami, and you're going to hear a lot about that at the COP, about the nature of the tsunami of change coming through the global economic system. That's what counts. I, I, I'm not worried about the the UN discussions. That will be useful, but it's a slow burn and much more interested in the statements that are coming to market at the COP from governments, from development banks. The World Bank has got some big announcements that are coming through, working in collaboration with other development banks, which is great, uh, and the kind of investment funds that are being announced. That's where I'm looking. And uh, it'll be... It'll be interesting. Now, you know, let's put aside the background. It's a it's a oil and gas state. But even in the UAE, it's fascinating how the government is now embracing a green transition. And in Saudi, you know, they're building the world's largest clean energy plants and green hydrogen plants. They're going to keep pumping oil. I wish they'd stop, but I'm not going to that's not going to stop in the short term. They're the cheapest provider in the world. But the Saudi oil minister said a few years ago. By 2050, Saudi will be primarily a clean energy exporter and only in a small way an oil exporter. Whoa, this yeah. COP will really bring that to the fore. You know, Sean, I've done a couple of programs in the last year with asset managers in the Middle East uh, and sustainable investors in the Middle East, and they are saying the same thing that you're saying right now, is that these those governments and governments all over the world that are going to be attending COP28 are really focusing on the need for change and doing something about it, putting capital to work. So that's good news, and we'll be tuning in to what's coming out of COP28, and maybe we'll see you know some kind of clip of you talking to folks there while the conference is going on. In the meantime, where online can our listeners learn more about the Climate Bonds Initiative and how can they get in touch with you with questions that they have about the topics that we've discussed in today's episode? Of course. We have a YouTube channel. Just search for Climate Bonds Initiative mm -hmm. or my name, Sean Kidney. Our website is climatebonds.net. And you can always contact me at the name showing on my screen, sean.kidney at cloudbonds.net. Feel free, or you can get you can submit a, a question via our website if you forget the email address. Um, we're easy to find. You search for climate bonds, we're all over the internet. Please <laughs> okay. do engage. Tons of reports in our websites if you're interested in getting the detail. Lots of data, lots of ideas too. 
look at the 101 ideas for policymakers, for example. But whatever you do, we have to run to make this change. Run, don't walk. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time today, Sean. And we'll be happy to add links to any articles or, or anything, any published materials that we can add to the site for people to get more informed about what uh, the Climate Bonds Initiative is doing at a global scale. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website to get in touch. With the right individuals leading the way in your company, sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.